today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new connection for two big government tech transitions. The Office of Management and Budget uh, first made the pledge to do this transition in 2005. Uh, I think the issue has simply been that there just hasn't been a, a push behind it at the federal level up until now. What's the point of continuing the Jedi fight at DOD? I've been in this very situation that Oracle finds itself in, and every time I've been faced with the situation where the court has seen fit to dismiss my lawsuit because the contract that the lawsuit is based on is over. And success strategies for the end of the fiscal year. If it's critical and the stars are aligned and you have funding now and it's a competed contract and you're following all the rules and everything, you could move the date up and start it. It's Friday, September 24th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The acting inspector general at the Defense Department says his office's review of the Jedi cloud contract was, quote, an exhaustive analysis of what occurred before, during and after the Jedi cloud procurement contract. The letter from acting IG Sean McDonald to Senator Chuck Grassley responds to claims Grassley made it in a letter in August, including that the IG office, quote, withheld evidence and mischaracterized key elements of its report. O'Donnell's letter says Grassley's allegations lack, quote, important context and objectivity. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly is the latest executive branch official to support a 24-hour deadline for federal contractors and agencies to report breaches to CISA. She told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Thursday her agency and the Justice Department should choose who has to report what instead of having Congress write it into legislation. Legislation that committee is considering would set the reporting range between 72 hours and seven days. New guidance from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency connects the new generation of trusted internet connection to the transition to IPv6. Dave Nichapier is tech reporter for FedScoop, writing about it at fedscoop.com. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is that connection between IPv6 and trusted internet connection 3.0? Welcome. Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. I'm excited to, to be doing this for the first time with you. Um, I feel like the connection here is that both of these things are designed to improve the security of federal networks, uh, but uh, there, there may be some conflict between the two. Uh, those changes are something that CIS has been tapped with addressing uh, in future guidance. This is but the first piece, uh, and they've chosen to use TIC.0 or TIC 3.0 as the jumping off point. I noted to a colleague of mine when this story came out this morning that we've been talking about the IPv4 to PV, IPv6 transition in the federal government for probably at least 12 years and maybe longer. Why is this such a heavy lift when, especially in the financial services industry and other private sector organizations, they were done with this years ago? So yeah, uh, the Office of Management and Budget uh, first made the pledge to do this transition in 2005. Uh, I think the issue has simply been that there just hasn't been a, a push behind it at the federal level up until now. Uh, they issued a 2020 memo kind of recommitting to this push for the first time and setting deadlines for agencies, uh, new deadlines for agencies to finally uh, address this in, in sort of a phased approach uh, and slowly move over their systems and assets uh, to the IPv6 only environments. Forgive me if I'm a dummy, but I learn something every time I read your work. 
and this is what I learned in addition to this memo today, IPv6 is 340, I might not even know how to say this right, undecillion internet protocol addresses solved the problem of IPv4 running out of readily available addresses. I've never even heard of that number before, Dave. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's sort of unfathomable to me as well, uh, but uh, it definitely addresses this issue of uh, the government uh, and just more broadly, we, we ran out of these addresses in 2015. Uh, and so that was the immediate issue. Uh, but this also, uh, by moving to IPv6, you're also supporting end-to-end -end visibility and micro-segmentation. As you well know, uh, the White House is pushing to um, move all agencies to a zero trust security architecture, and, and that's going to help with this. Dave Nitschapir, thank you very much for joining me. Terrific to have you on the show. Thank you. You can read Dave's story and more about these and many other stories at fedscoop.com. We're getting closer to Cyber Week, October 18th through the 22nd. CyberScoop's putting on a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events and lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government. They're going to be there digitally and in person. You can learn more and register now at cyberweek.us. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, says he's standing up an unmanned systems task force. He says his main concerns are reliability and command and control issues. Harlan Ullman is senior advisor at the Atlantic Council. His latest book's coming in December, The Fifth Horseman and the New MAD, How Massive Attacks of Disruption Became the Looming Danger to a Divided Nation and the World at Large. Harlan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write uh, recently about the unmanned systems this. The Navy relies on distributed maritime operations for much of its planning. DMO must be incorporated once the strategy is determined, not before. Is that strategy the most important thing that could come out of the CNO's task force? Welcome, Harlan. Yeah, absolutely. The problem here in the Chinese who analyze American defense views make this critique that we let technology drive strategy, not strategy driving technology. Now, it's all well and good to look at a range of technologies, but you've got to focus. What do you want? Drones are really crucial. Autonomous vehicles, however you want to define them. But I think you need to bind or bound where you're looking in terms of what is the strategy that you're going to use them for. Are these going to be war fighting? Are these going to be for reconnaissance? Are these going to be for transportation, refueling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I think what you need to do is to take the overall strategy, what our particular national defense strategy is, then determining the naval aspects and where drones and unmanned vehicles can fit, where they can't fit as a way of narrowing the focus. If you don't do that, you're going to be unbounded, and it's going to be very, very difficult to come up with the nature of systems, which to me are the ones that are going to be needed that are financially sustainable and technologically achievable. One of the reasons I like reading your work is you puncture myths, at least in my mind, Harlan. Uh, i was been thinking about unmanned vehicles just within the context of the last five to ten years, and you write the use of unmanned vehicles dates to World Wars One and Two. Pilotless aircraft employed in both. Uh, you write about uh, German uh, vehicles and Japanese vehicles in World War Two. And uh, you write about some of the things that we used in Vietnam. What's different about what the military broadly and the Navy in particular is considering today from what we've seen historically, Harlan? Well, the technology is, is not only light years more advanced, that you have now not only reliable unmanned vehicles, but vehicles that can perform far greater tasks. 
Uh, in Vietnam, these were very rudimentary. They could take photographs, they could do basic reconnaissance, and some were able to attack targets, but not necessarily with uh, any kind of real accuracy unless they were guided all the way. But now you have the unlimited possibility of having unmanned vehicles that are being able to do their own reconnaissance, their own shooting, their own analysis. And so this is a, a far different world with far greater technologies. It's almost as comparing the days of uh, muzzle-loading rifles, uh, muzzle-loading cannons with uh, more modern uh, missiles, or indeed the difference between sail and steam. And so what we have to take a look at is where can these vehicles make the greatest use uh, and where can they be used as offsets for personnel? I would make a further point. One of the things that is not noted in the CNO's March uh, campaign plan to develop the future direction for unmanned vehicles is a study on the law of war and also the moral and ethical values of using these autonomous weapons. It's one thing to develop these weapons, which maybe be able to shoot on their own, but have we been able to combine that with the moral, legal, and ethical grounds uh, that define what we can and cannot do in warfare? So I think that's a missing part of all this. But having said that, it seems to me drones give a new dimension to warfare, provided we can put them within the context of strategy and indeed affordable technology uh, too often. And you take a look at some of the drones and unmanned vehicles the Navy has used in the past, uh, $15 million for Sea uh, Scout. Uh, that's a huge amount of money, and I don't think that's affordable. So we need to bind, bind them or bound them, and we need to do this within the confines of a strategy first. And from the strategy, then we can work to more specific technologies and systems that are going to be needed. Your reference to drones there that can fire on their own is interesting to me, Harlan, because just about every AI professional that I've talked to, civilian in uniform inside the building, has said, we're never going to be in a position where the drone or the algorithm decides when to fire. It's always going to be a human decision of when to fire. It should maybe the phrase for now be attached to the end of those statements moving forward? Sure. I just don't believe that. I think in the future, there are going to be times when you're going to have very, very strict rules of engagement. And if the, uh, the acquiring vehicle conforms to those rules of engagement, then it's going to be allowed to fire. I mean, for example, take the take what happened in Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago when we we struck the wrong target uh, with one of our drones, a Predator and a Hellfire missile. That was human error. But supposing that that uh, vehicle had certain guidelines that conformed to what a human would have done and was allowed to fire. And so I don't think that there's going to be that much of a distinction. So I my view is that we have to look at this very closely. That's why examination of the law and ethics and morality are very, very critical, because in some situations, consider against a hypersonic weapon. You may not have time for humans to be in the loop, quite frankly. And so we need to look very, very closely to make sure that we have uh, compatible views and doctrine on how law, morality and ethics are going to be used in combination with unmanned vehicles. You write in this piece, Harlan, an unmanned strategy in the Navy should draw heavily from an effort co-chaired by the then Undersecretary of the Navy, Thomas Bodley, and then Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Bill Moran, called Breaking the Mold, BTM. What was in Breaking the Mold that should be referential for the new uh, unmanned strategy in the Navy, Harlan? Uh, the whole idea behind Breaking the Mold was that we have to look fundamentally at different strategies because of 
not only the, the reality of the way the world is changing, but also budget realities. Uh, the Department of Defense needs, in my mind, at least 5 to 7% annual real growth just to keep what it has. There are lots of reasons for this, the increasing cost of technology and capability, people, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm afraid that the current uh, force planning uh, guidelines are not going to be sufficiently funded, and so therefore we have to look elsewhere. What we came up with in the Pacific, for example, was a mobile maritime line of defense that would be able to prevent, for example, the Chinese from venturing out beyond the first island chain. And in Europe, a porcupine defense that would make any kind of a Russian first attack exceedingly difficult and too costly. And to do that, we depended very, very largely on unmanned vehicles. Imagine swarms of drones, hundreds of thousands. Uh, think about the kamikazes in World War II and supposing instead of having a very, very modest and small uh, kill potential, half of them hit. We could have lost Okinawa. Now, supposing you're a commander and you're being faced with thousands of drones, not only drones in the air, but undersea drones, and indeed conceivably drones on the ground. How do you deal with those? And so there are all sorts of opportunities here. Mine warfare, uh, anti-submarine warfare, anti-surface warfare. There are all sorts of areas that I think are very, very applicable to using unmanned vehicles. Breaking the mold not only looked at different alternative strategies, but also the system to go with it. And had it not been cut short by a past chief of naval operations, I think this would have offered the Navy lots of good ideas and indeed ways that they could consider better how they're going to use autonomous vehicles given different strategies uh, than the ones that may be currently under consideration. Harlan Ullman, always great to have you on the program. Your stuff's always full of a lot to think about. I appreciate your time today. Francis, thank you very much indeed. You can find a link to Harlan's column in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, the end of the fiscal year doesn't mean the end of new starts. Former federal CIO Karen Evans tells you how to beat the deadline at the start of the CR. The Daily Scoop podcast is available every day ahead of time. You get a little sneak peek if you follow the show on Twitter at Daily Scoop Pod. The controversy over the Jedi cloud contract continues before the Supreme Court. Oracle's asking the court to let its lawsuit against the Defense Department about the contract continue. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, welcome. It's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the program. My colleague John Hewitt-Jones writes on fedscoop.com in a brief filed last Friday. The technology company argued its case shouldn't be declared moot simply on the basis of the DOD ending the contract. Does that make sense to you? You followed this contract from the very beginning and it seems like it's done now and everything else should be done to an outsider like me. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, and thanks for having me. It's great to be on this new venture. Best of luck, Francis. It's, it sounds great so far. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been in this very situation that, that Oracle finds itself in when I've practiced before the Court of Federal Claims and even at GAO where you know the agency takes some action that, that ends the contract action that you filed a complaint on. And every time I've been faced with the situation where the court has seen fit to dismiss my lawsuit because the contract that the lawsuit is based on is over, uh, finding that it's moot. So, you know, I'm very interested to see what the Supreme Court does here and to see if they find, you know, if, if they take up this action and, and decide whether it's moot or not, because um, that will impact a lot of the government contracts industry when we file these protests. And because it's not unusual for the government to cancel a solicitation or cancel a contract and resolicit or do something new. And a lot of times we lose jurisdiction when that happens because 
the complaint that we filed was based on a particular contract and that contract is over. So if Oracle, you know, I think Oracle is facing an uphill battle just because of the weight of what has happened over the past decades in this industry where, you know, the contract's canceled, so is your lawsuit, <laughs> essentially. So I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how the Supreme Court views this because we, I don't think we've ever had the Supreme Court kind of look at this issue on mootness on protests. But um, I know in some respects, I'm rooting for Oracle here because it will help my practice down the road (laughs) (laughs) if we get a bunch of uh, actions taken by the government and they try to cancel the contract. I could I could then point to Oracle versus United States. Um, but I'm not uh, holding my breath on it. It sounds, though, like although you're a good contract attorney, the record is over in baseball terminology. And so I wonder what either Oracle or its attorneys could possibly think would be different about this case or different about arguing to the court, to Supreme Court, rather than arguing to the bodies that you named a few moments ago, Eric, that would make the result potentially different. Yeah, I mean, looking at their brief that they filed before the Supreme Court uh, just a few days back, you know, they're essentially kind of arguing, I think, that the Supreme Court, that the government's DOD specifically is is kind of doing the same thing wrong that they did before. So their case should not be dismissed because the same bad is happening that they've complained about in their complaint. But the problem, the uphill battle that they face is that that may very well be true, but the remedy there is to file a new protest challenging that new contract action and the justification that DOD laid out for essentially sole sourcing this this work to two other companies. So it'll be interesting to see if they kind of make that argument work. It's a fairly novel argument, and I think it's kind of ingenious by their lawyers to bring that up. But um, you know, again, I'm just not optimistic that the Supreme Court's going to see it their way because the underlying contract action is gone. So usually that means the jurisdiction for the lawsuit is gone. That being said, um, you know, from a selfish perspective, I hope that they prevail. <laughs> Another piece from uh, John Hewitt Jones's story: the department said at the time, July sixth, when it uh, announced that it was getting rid of the Jedi contract, the department said it would seek proposals only from Microsoft and AWS for the initial portion of the acquisition because market research showed these were the only two cloud service providers capable of meeting contract requirements. How does one go about doing that? Not picking on the Defense Department, but how does one go about stating something that explicitly and not opening itself up to another round of protests from the oracles of the world, Eric? I completely agree. I, I mean, this... I mean, first of all, this contract, the value of the contract is so large, even in this interim basis. And I think there's a fear by the oracles of the world, not just oracles specifically, that they're going to be locked out of any future procurements if this kind of bridge, for lack of a better term, contract is 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 just awarded to Microsoft and or Amazon. And that's not saying that Amazon and and, and Microsoft don't offer what the government needs. They, they probably do. Um, but... Other vendors are going to say we offer the same thing. So why? I'm not, I'm a little bit puzzled why DoD just didn't give an opportunity to collect market re- voluntary market research or have an industry day or something from these other vendors, and that would help blunt any potential protest grounds that the oracles of the world would file. Because you know it's an easy protest to show that they didn't do market research if they just kind of announce that they've done their own internal market research and uh, and then go down that path. It may very well be that the market research they did was sufficient, 
Um, that would be just, you know, found out when the administrative record is produced in a protest. But it's much easier to say that you've done the right market research when you've actually solicited the information from the companies in the industry. And it strikes me that the chance of that protest is about 100% based on this clip from the filing. This is Oracle's filing to the court based on the same pre-existing market research that infected the Jedi procurement challenged in Oracle's pending petition for certiorari. The department stated that it anticipated awarding two such contracts, one to Amazon Web Services and one to Microsoft. So if they're calling that infected in that court filing, I mean, this is bound for protest again, isn't it, Eric? Yes. <laughs> and I think I'm sure DOT realized that no matter what they did, they were going to get a protest from somebody. Um, but I, you know, be it for me to, to, to tell DOD how to run its procurements, but I'm going to do that anyway right now. <laughs> That's what but, you're here for, Eric. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> um, but, you know, probably better off kind of soliciting feedback from industry and asking for proposals maybe, you know, or market research from, from these companies that think that they have what it takes to kind of be on this vehicle. And um, they'd probably still get a protest, even no matter what they did, they're probably going to get a protest, but at least expand what your, what your intake is. That way the arguments that you didn't do enough market research are going to fall short. There's a much better chance to fall short if you get more information and synthesize that information and making a decision, then go ahead and sole source it to a couple of companies after the fact. And that justification is much easier to write when you can say as an official that we asked these companies for their capabilities. They said these they have these capabilities. That's not enough for our needs. So we're going to go with Microsoft and Amazon, which have the right capabilities. Eric Crucius of Holland and Knight. Great to talk to you as always, my friend. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You can read more about Oracle's new filing in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Monday's program, Good News and Bad News, for one of the Defense Department's biggest IT projects. Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office on the Pentagon's Electronic Health Records Program on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 o'clock Monday afternoon on fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Today is the last Friday of fiscal year 2021. The next few days could be the largest year-end spend for the federal government ever. Karen Evans is partner at KENT Partners. She's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security and former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Karen, welcome. It's great to see you again. What should agencies be doing today and this weekend to prepare for next Thursday so they're spending the money they have left efficiently and effectively? Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Francis. And this is always uh, a fun time of year. But what they, I think this year is a little bit different because agencies uh, got additional funding in order to be able to deal with the remote workforce, for example, and some of the issues associated with cybersecurity because of solar winds. And so I think it's an opportunity for them to really look at some of the infrastructure that they normally wouldn't have been able to buy, like some of the upgrades, some of the things that you have to do to make the network more secure. And I think those are the things that agencies are going to, should be, and I hope are very focused on. Where should they be going to look for those solutions? Now, obviously, is not the time to start taking meetings and so on to learn what's out there. The time is to 
go to places to acquisition vehicles, I imagine, where it's easy to get these solutions and get the money out the door. Well, I can tell you that most agencies, if you know, I know I did the same thing. I always had everything ready to go so that, um, you know, you've been doing your homework all through the year, but you would have things ready to go because this is the time of year where, you know, somebody else's procurement might not make it through. So the person who has all their paperwork ready to go, the acquisition officials are going to go ahead and process that. So, um, you know, most of them, the easiest way, I think, for a lot of acquisition officials is it's either competed contracts that are uh, there, you know, the government-wide vehicles that are there. Um, all of the procurement officials, I think, are on standby. You know, they work to the, the last hour processing a lot of these things. But the GSA schedules, those things are a lot easier for acquisition officials to be able to get the paperwork processed. I do think... For example, um, the CDM program at DHS, those are competed contracts. So I do think that there's going to be a lot of work, but, um, you know, that's getting the work through DHS and DHS has to get it over to another contract vehicle that they support underneath. So you'll see, you know, those guys will be working really, really hard. And there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle that have to happen so that it's stamped September 30th. Where's the greatest potential for a mistake to be made in the year-end rush, Karen? You know, it, I I would have to say if um, there's like two things. Um, I'd like to think that the CIOs are prepared and ready to go, right? So it wouldn't happen there. But if you have to hand off, like if you have to go through your CIO because you're in a component organization and then you have to get the approval done, it, it's, you know, you want to make sure that that's seamless because that could fall through the cracks. You know, you have to make sure who's ever um, approving the procurements that they're all in line um, because that's where I think some of the stuff would fall through the cracks. If a component has to go up to a CIO, then the CIO has to go over to the acquisitions, how that process flows. So it's just the availability of the humans. It's not a process problem or an efficiency problem. It's just, is there going to be enough time for me to go around and personally collect the agency level CIO, the agency level acquisition approvals and so on that I need? Is that what you're getting at, Karen? Yeah, and and I think like at DHS, that's that those processes are automated. So even if um, in the situation of COVID, right, where people aren't physically still coming to work, the process works pretty efficiently. So you just have to make sure that the availability is there. So it's all about, again, it always comes back to good communications. We'll make sure that it flows through. Are there other ways that this year end could be different because of the pandemic, Karen? See, I, I think so, only from the aspect of everything is virtual, right? So people, especially toward the end of the year, I think it might be a little bit more of a panic for the vendor community, our vendor community, because, um, you know, they, they, they're they used to being able, and this is not their first year, right, because they did it last year as well, but um, the funding is actually higher this year because they got additional funds to deal with cybersecurity, they got additional funds um, to deal with COVID. And so I think the vendor community might be a little bit more stressed out because they like to see the people, right? They would walk around physically within an agency. And so um, because that's not there, you know, you're relying on other skills and uh, to make sure that the paperwork gets through. 
Is there anything about the fact that we don't know what's happening with a CR October 1st that should impact or influence the way that somebody does their business between now and September 30th, Karen? Well, the government's, you know, worked under a CR forever, it seems like. it's not. It doesn't seem like there's always that there's been appropriation bills going through. So what would happen is um, the difference about processing the work, and this is, you know, uh, a term of art, but a new start, right? Um, because it's end of fiscal year money, if you're gonna do a new effort, I mean, a lot of times that's what we did. We, you know, we did new efforts that would carry you over because of the CR, right? Um, when you start processing things next week in October 1st, and you're under a continuing resolution, you can't do any new starts. So that would be the difference between the timing um, of going forward, right? So that if there are things that are new activities that you had funding for, the paperwork is there, those have to get processed so that they're in process when the continuing resolution happens because now they're no longer a new start. So it's a real nuance. I would never encourage anybody to do this, Karen. But is there a way to sneak in a new start under the wire with 21 money that was probably going to get started with 22 money, but you don't know that's coming and you don't know how long that's going to be? And, and we keep hearing CR runs till the beginning of December, so you're going to lose potentially two months at the beginning of the fiscal year. Would anybody ever try that? Well, sure, because LMB <laughs> would have, I mean, no, seriously, people would be looking at... Um, Okay, if I have the funding now, given what the project plan is, right, because you've already done some of this work, remember, the way the budget process is, you're planning two years in advance. So your project plans and things like that can move back and forth based on the date. So if it's critical and the stars are aligned and you have funding now and it's a competed contract and you're following all the rules and everything, you could move the date up and start it, which then would then affect a lot of other things. Look, even if a CR goes to December, the agency monies, like the flow down of monies, most agencies, I know when I did my contracts, the renewal periods um, would be like March because you would want to put the new contract, like the new term, right? would go from like, you know, March to February, the end of February, because that takes into consideration the allocations that agencies have to get. Like just because you're done a CR and they go, oh, here's your funds and it's December, the budget shop within your department, the CFO, has to do the allocation of funds and things like that. So when you have these operation contracts, if you check with people, most of them run the period of performance into like March of the next year so that there's no break because nobody wants you know a cio to say well i'm sorry you can't you know have your email or you can't have this connectivity so um cios are pretty good at planning and dealing with continuing resolutions to maintain operations karen evans great to talk to you thank you very much for joining me today oh you're welcome francis anytime thank you you can read more about the end of the fiscal year in today's show notes at the daily the Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the program on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. If you haven't, please do it today. High ratings and good reviews of the show help other people find it. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A look at the big EHR program at the Defense Department on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 